Our sermon passage for this morning is Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 48. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by, by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers to Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered by God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and the power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all that did both in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach the people, preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Join me in prayer as we begin this morning. To our eternal and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who constantly leaves the 99 to find the one, we stand forever amazed at who you are acknowledging that we do not even begin to grasp the fullness of your glory. As we sang earlier this morning, you give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. and You restore every heart that is broken. Yes, in every way we can imagine, great are you, Lord. And to us who had sinned, and who continue to sin against you, we acknowledge that we are utterly powerless to make ourselves right in your sight. We confess our sins to you, and we throw ourselves on your mercy. We are thankful, Father, that not only are you a great God, but you are a merciful God. And in response to our sin, you have not subjected us to your wrath as we deserve but you have given us your son. What a very precious gift. As we spend this month focusing on our missions efforts, we are reminded that anything good we can do can only be done in your strength, and so we plead for your help. Starting in our own hearts, give us a passion and a burden to love our neighbor, to love the stranger, the alien, the oppressed, and yes, to love our enemies. Help us to do good to them, to see them not through the eyes of our own sinful hearts or of the world, but to see them as you do. Help us to remember that we can only love because you first loved us, and that apart from you, there would be nothing lovely in or about us. We pray fervently for our missions partners and for the work that you are doing through them in our community and around the world. For those who are serving the outcast and the oppressed, may you bless their efforts. For those who are taking the gospel to hard places in our city, in our country, and all over the world, we pray that you would bear much fruit through them. That you would bring light 
and life and salvation. We pray for the hearts of those to whom they will minister, that you would help them to persevere through persecution and that nothing would hinder their work for you. And now I pray for the preaching of your word. Father, I tremble to think of the responsibility of opening your word, and I acknowledge my insufficiency, but trust in yours. I ask that you would give us fresh eyes and hearts to see and worship you anew this morning. May your word penetrate deeply into our hearts and lives, and where we are different from it, may we be the ones who are changed. If there are any today here today who do not know you, we ask you to do the saving work that only you can do. And for us all, may our lives be marked by love for and obedience to you and love for our neighbor. It is in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit that we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. If you have not already done so, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 10. As LJ shared earlier this morning, we are in the midst of what we call Redeemer on Mission, which is where we take a month to talk about and reflect on all that God is doing through our missions efforts that we undertake throughout the year. And as he shared, our theme this year is that our God is unstoppable. And today's text is very much in keeping with that idea. Now I wonder, have you ever had a moment in your life when some decision, some detail that seemed very insignificant turned out actually to be quite significant, perhaps even life-changing? And I know I've had several moments like that in my life. One that will forever stick with me, not least because it's one of my favorites, was January 4th, 2006. On that day, I was at the Passion Worship Conference here in Nashville. I had gone with a buddy of mine, and we met up with some friends for lunch over Chick-fil-A. And one of the girls in our group had run into a girl from her church in Murphy's and invited her to join us. So that was the little decision that took on a whole new significance when seven months and eight days later, that girl became my wife. So early takeaway this morning is you take Jesus and you add God's own chicken sandwich, you get marriage. I don't really know how that works, but it did for me. You know, I, I kid, but, but for us, you know, that one small moment truly changed everything. And, and today's text is, is a lot like that because on the surface, this is just a story about a man being saved, which is amazing. But when we step back and we zoom out just a little bit, we see that it is so much more than that. You know, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Jamie preach in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus says to his apostles, the Holy Spirit is going to give you power and you're going to become my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And today's text is going to highlight a very significant moment in that progression. In fact, I don't think it is a stretch to say that this is where the gospel takes a quantum leap forward in going to the nation. So much so that we see that the Jewish believers who came to this moment with Peter are amazed at what God has done. And it is my hope and it's my prayer for me and for you that today we will continue to be amazed at what God has done, at what he is still doing and what he has promised to continue to do. And that, I think, really highlights the main point of today's sermon. And if you take nothing else away this morning, remember this, that God's saving grace transcends every human category. And there is no human being who is beyond his reach, even, I would say especially, those whom we might least expect. And of course, that's, that's what this month, and that's what this series, and that's what our missions efforts are all about. We know that our God truly is unstoppable. 
And his mission is, and his promise is that he will take his gospel to every tribe and language and nation and people. And it is one of our foundational convictions here at Redeemer to, to be a part of that work, so much so that we put it on these big giant banners behind me here. We want to proclaim Christ. We want to make disciples of our county and this area, of our nation and of our world. Wherever he gives us opportunity to do so, we want to take it. And we also want to make sure that no human barrier, no man-made tradition, no partiality, as LJ shared, that, that no prejudice would ever stop us from doing that. So to help encourage and exhort us to this great work, let's look back at what God has done here in Acts chapter 10. Look there with me. We're going to start in verses 1 through 16 as we come to our first point, which is a time of preparation. A time of preparation. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Okay, there's a lot of biographical detail in that one little sentence. So let's take a moment to make sure we understand the scene that has been set before us. We learn that we're, we're in the city of Caesarea, which is a coastal town on the eastern Mediterranean. It's about 30 miles north of Joppa, which will matter in a moment. And as it happens, it's the capital of the Roman province of Judea. So being a provincial capital, yes, a provincial capital of Rome, you would not be surprised to find a substantial military presence there. And so there is, including this man named Cornelius, who it tells us is a centurion, which just means that he's in charge of a hundred men. Now, scholars tell us that Roman centurions were, were well-paid. They were well-respected and well-regarded. And that, that brings us to our first unexpected development. That's a theme you have heard and you're going to keep hearing this morning is this idea of God doing things that are unexpected. Because you have Cornelius here, who is not only a prominent officer in the Roman military, but it goes on to tell us that he and his household fear God, that they give to the poor, and that they pray. Now, these are not just throwaway details meant to make us think, oh, what a, what a nice guy. It tells us that he is a God-fearer. And that term is just a colloquial term meant to identify a Gentile who has in some way come to believe in and worship the God of Israel, the one true God. It's possible he's even affiliated with the local synagogue, but it also means that he hasn't gone through all of the Jewish rites of conversion, including the act of circumcision, which one commentator said this week, and what I think has to be the understatement of the week, was often a strong impediment to men converting to Judaism. Indeed. Um, but right out of the gate, we have this, this very unexpected juxtaposition of Roman, military, Gentile, someone who from the Jewish perspective is very much an outsider, and an officer in the military force that's occupying their land. And yet, for reasons that Scripture doesn't tell us, he and his household have come to believe in and worship the one true God. So an early point of application for us here is you never know in whose heart God may be at work. Because certainly for the initial Jewish audience, there would have been no human reason for them to think that Cornelius was somebody in whom God would take an interest at all. He is in every way an outsider to them. Someone they would consider an enemy, certainly somebody they, that they would look on as lesser than or, or as an other and yet God has already been at work in his life, and he has more plans for him. What are those? Well, let's look at verses 3 through 8, because next we see Cornelius praying in the afternoon when he has a vision of an angel. And like everybody else in the New Testament that encounters an angel of the Lord, it says he is terrified, because contrary to what Hallmark and Precious Moments would have us believe, angels are terrifying creatures. In fact, I, 
I will contribute all the dollars to a Kickstarter for somebody that wants to start the Real Talk Bible decor line. You're gonna have the angel of terror on the Christmas tree, Noah's Ark baby theme with all the dead people, like all these things. I'm in, whoever wants to do that. But even in his terror, Cornelius receives what I imagine is an unexpected and encouraging word from this messenger of the Lord. Because he tells him that God has heard your prayers and he has a task for him, which is to send for the apostle Peter, who conveniently enough is in Joppa, just 30 miles away. So Cornelius does this. And before we look at Peter's time of preparation, let me encourage you again with another point, which is that even before Peter gets there, we see that God is already at work in Cornelius's heart. And, and I hope that this is an encouragement for you because if you are someone who finds yourself just gripped with, with fear or nervousness or timidity when it comes to sharing the gospel, of telling others about Jesus, be encouraged and have your burdens lightened to know that not only is it God who saves, but it is God who prepares their hearts to hear from him through you. That's not your burden to carry. You can't do that. And God's purposes will not be thwarted. So having prepared Cornelius to meet Peter, let's look in on what is happening in Peter's life in Joppa in verses 9 through 16. It says that like Cornelius, he is also in a time of prayer. Are you picking up on a theme here? Prayer is an essential component of the Christian life, and it's something that we ought not neglect. But unlike Cornelius, he doesn't have a vision of an angel. Rather, it says that he's hungry. So in his praying, he has a trance-like vision about food. I just think that's funny. If, if you, like me, find yourself sometimes getting just a little sleepy or a little distracted in your prayers, here's your hero, even the apostle Peter. He's praying, but he's hungry, so he starts thinking about food. But of course, this is no mere daydream. And it's definitely unusual if you're not fresh on your Old Testament dietary laws. Because what happens? Well, verses 11 through 13 tell us that the, this great sheet descends and it's filled with animals. And God tells Peter, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And we know from Peter's response in verse 14 that at least some of the animals were unclean because he says, Lord, no, I, I've never eaten anything that, that is common or unclean. And he's not making this up. He, he thinks he is trying to obey the law of God here. But then, once again, something unexpected happens. And God makes this seemingly small, kind of insignificant statement that is actually history changing because he says to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. And despite doing this three times, it says that Peter remains perplexed inwardly as to what this means. And maybe you are too, and that's okay. Because for this moment, what matters is that God has been deeply at work in the lives of both Peter and Cornelius to prepare them for this moment and through them to tell the world what he is about to do. What is that? Well, that takes us to our second point, which is that this is a time of revelation. A time of revelation. So in verses 17 and 19, the passage tells us that Peter is inwardly perplexed. He's pondering the vision. And maybe you've had a moment like that where you're like... Lord, I, I know you're trying to tell me something. I, I see where we're going here. They're just not sure what it is. You know, there's a blanket, there's animals. You said to eat them. I'm not really sure what to do with that. That's probably not your confusion, but maybe you have this moment, but this is Peter's. And so God makes it very easy for him. In verse 18, he just says, Peter, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down and accompany them without hesitation for I have sent them, which Peter does. And do you see this pattern here? You know, in both Cornelius's and Peter's lives, there are moments where they don't know exactly what it is that God is telling them. They don't know for sure what to do, but when he makes it clear to them, it says they obey right away. They better wait. Now, this is certainly not the main point of this text, but there is a lesson here that I hope will be encouraging and challenging to us because there are gonna be many times in your life 
when you don't know exactly what God is doing. You don't know exactly what it is he wants you to do. But even as you're prayerfully seeking his will, what you can do is the next right thing that he puts in front of you. When you have a choice to obey him, you do that. And you just continue to pursue him. And you're going to be surprised to find how often you wind up exactly where he wants you to be. So back to our text in verse 23, we see that Peter has agreed to go with them. And you notice that he's taking believers with him from Joppa. And when he gets there, Cornelius has gathered his friends and his relatives. So what God is about to do, he is certainly going to do publicly. This is not going to be hidden. And then in verses 25 and 26, Cornelius responds more than a little overzealously. He says he falls down to worship Peter. And Peter rightly and quickly corrects him and says, no, 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 Cornelius, stand up. I too am a man. Now, while Peter, even before becoming a Christian, probably would not have accepted worship from somebody, let's not gloss over too quickly what he says because it's very, very important. Because certainly he wouldn't receive the worship, but as a Jew, he would have thought himself as, as superior to this Gentile. You know, he's part of God's chosen people. And it's almost as though the pieces of the vision are starting to come together. Because you see, all the human barriers that would have separated him from Cornelius start to fall down as he says, no, 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 you stand up. I too am a man. For him to identify himself on this equal level with Cornelius is huge. And, and I don't think I'm, I'm overstating this because look at what happens in verses 27 and 28. Peter sees the crowd gathered and hear again what he says because this is so important. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Bingo. It just clicked for Peter what God was showing him. And there are two really important things for us to get here. First, when Peter says that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit somebody of another nation, that doesn't come from any Old Testament restriction. This came from later man-made traditions where in fairness, they were trying to work out how to live out faithful obedience. But what actually happens is it leads to sinful disobedience and to pride. Oh church, how many times have we missed an opportunity to love somebody, to share the gospel, to minister to them just because we get hung up on our own man-made traditions, on our own prejudice and fears. May it never be. And second, before, we're, before we are too quick and harsh to judge Peter and the Jews that have come before him, let's take a moment to examine our own hearts and lives. Either last week or, or this morning when you came in, you probably received one of these green um, Redeemer on Mission brochures. And thanks to LJ and Andy for making this happen. Um, if you didn't, we'd be glad to get it into your hands. And you, you heard this from, from Duffy in the video a little bit ago, but with all of this in mind, I want to take just a moment and read you some of the descriptions of some of our partners here. And you heard about them. Project Connect, uh, first one on the left. It says they help to break the poverty cycle through relationships, resources, education, and connection to the faith community. Further down, the Cumberland Crisis Pregnancy Center. It provides resources and support for young women and families facing the challenges of an unplanned pregnancy. Over here on the right side, Servant Group International. It works to encourage and equip the body of Christ to love and serve our Middle Eastern neighbors. In addition to international work, they offer support to refugees and migrants into the Nashville area. So you have three of our partners where Redeemer is seeking to serve those who are living in impoverished circumstances. It's seeking to serve 
those who are facing an unplanned pregnancy, seeking to serve our, neighbor, excuse me, our neighbors from the Middle East who have immigrated or fled to the national area for refuge. You know, we might not use exactly the same language, but I fear that far too often in our world and lamentably in the church, these are exactly the people that we would call unclean. And before we strain a muscle patting ourselves on the back for being so good to work with these ministries, I want to meddle just a little and get down in the darker crevices of, of my heart and maybe, maybe yours too. Because, you know, it can be easy to send money to organizations like this. And, and praise God that we do. We believe that is important. That's why we partner with them. But sometimes that can be easy to do while letting them do the hard work of actually ministering to the marginalized in our society. But, but I wonder, what, what is my first instinct? What, what is your first gut reaction thought when you come face to face with somebody who's experiencing homelessness, somebody maybe who doesn't look quite like you, who doesn't speak your language, someone whose politics differ from yours, or maybe just somebody who's found themselves at a point in life when you say, this is your own sinful fault. Well, I know my own sinful heart, and way too often, my first, and let's just be real honest, my second and probably my tenth thought and reaction is to just, to recoil and turn away, to walk away, to judge, to do nothing. Oh, church, this ought not be. We ought to respond like Peter, to lift them up, look at them and say, I too am a man. I too am a man. It, because we cannot call any person unclean. And hopefully in time, at least our 10th thought, but then eventually our first would be to look at them and, and to pray and say, Jesus, help me to see them, not through my own sinful eyes, not as the world would see them, but, but as you do. Help me to love them like you do, to care for them as you care for me, and to tell them of you. Because that's exactly what happens next. You see, after explaining what God has shown him, Peter asks, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius relates his vision to him. And, and for both of them, this solidifies God's revelation. And it leads Peter to declare in verse 34 that truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is a statement of enormous import. You cannot overstate this because it's very hard to convey just what a firm line existed between Jews and Gentiles. And so for Peter to proclaim that every nation, people in every nation can be acceptable to God is an extraordinary paradigm shift for him and for us all. And you know, I told you this was history changing, but what to do with this? It's not just enough that, that Peter knows this now. What must he do? And so that brings us to our third point, which is that this is a time of proclamation, a time of proclamation, because having realized what God has sent him there to do, Peter immediately launches in to sharing the gospel, of telling them all about who Jesus is and what he has done. And that's in verses 38 through 43. But, but remember again how it ends. He says that God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter extends God's free gift his offer of the free gift of salvation from sin 
through Christ. And that is the same offer that we extend today and every day. On the authority of God's word, I invite and we implore you to repent of your sin, to believe in Jesus and be reconciled to God. I can say this with more certainty than anything else I will ever say here, that that Jamie or myself or any of our elders or staff, really any member of Redeemer would love nothing more than to talk with you about exactly these things. Because the whole point of today's sermon is that God can save even the least expected. So don't let anything stop you from coming to him. And there may be some of you who've heard this appeal many times. And maybe you almost start to roll your eyes and think, does this really matter? I mean, is God really that concerned with, with what I think or we believe? Can't we just get about loving people and go get some things done? It does matter. It matters very much. And in thinking this week about God doing the unexpected, I was reminded about something I read time, one time where I heard the gospel come out of maybe the least expected mouth ever. So in December 2009, there was an interview in Portland Monthly Magazine. That's Portland, Oregon, not Portland, Tennessee. I don't know if they have a monthly magazine. They might. Um, but it was between a guy named Christopher Hitchens and a lady named Marilyn Sewell. And if those names don't mean anything to you, that's fine. Um, Hitchens died in 2011. And in the 2000s, he gained some notoriety with some other guys for being one of the four horsemen of the new atheism. He's a brilliantly brilliant but militant atheist. And so he had written a book at that time called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, because he was a fan of subtle book titles. So he's invited to do this interview with Miss Sewell, who had just retired as the minister at the First Unitarian Church of Portland, which was one of the largest Unitarian congregations in the U.S. So thinking about this idea of our unstoppable God and how he can work in even the most unlikely places and this question of whether he really cares what we believe here, I want you to hear just one Q&A from this interview. And keep in mind that the questioner at least purports to be a Christian and the answerer is the militant atheist. So here's the question. The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Hear the response from the atheist. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, you are really not, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. Oh God, that I would speak with such force and such clarity. And her response to that was, let me go someplace else. And the interview kind of goes down in flames from there. And the point of this is, it's not to point and laugh at her, because there but for the grace of God go I. But it's to remind us that, yes, this truth matters. It matters greatly because apart from it, we cannot be saved and we are utterly without hope. That's why we do this because Romans 1.16 tells us it is the power to save. God didn't just leave us here with busy work. This is how he will save. And that brings us to our final point that this is a time of salvation. You may say, whoa, whoa, whoa. fourth point, brother, do you even know how to Baptist? Yes, I do. It's fine. I promise. It's like extra innings in baseball. Free baseball at Redeemer this morning. Don't worry. We're going out on a high note, and we'll go quickly. As Peter's preaching, it tells us in verse 44, the Holy Spirit falls on all who hear this word. And I love how it describes the reaction of those with Peter. It says, they are amazed to see God do this. And a couple things I think we need to know. One, it's one thing for them to hear Peter say that this is true. It is quite another 
to see the Holy Spirit fall and to hear them start speaking in tongues. And I absolutely believe this is exactly what happened that day, but we also need to know this is not normative for saying every time somebody gets saved, this is what's going to happen. This is God visibly demonstrating and validating this message that yes, the gospel is for Gentiles. It is for the nations. And as a result of their salvation, Peter rightly declares that they ought to be baptized. So not only have they been saved, but now Peter is saying that they need to be excuse me, publicly and visibly declared as saved and as part of the body. And then finally, in what almost seems like a throwaway comment in verse 48, in the last verse of the chapter, it says they asked Peter to remain for some days. And I know we're not in chapter 11 this morning, but if you read there, you'll see that Peter does stay. And in fact, he, he eats with them. And, and this is a big deal because we, we learn through all this that Gentiles have been saved. Gentiles have been baptized and declared to be part of the body. And the full hand of Christian fellowship has been extended to them, all because God has declared them clean. This is what we're talking about when we speak of our unstoppable God. This is why we are so passionate about missions at Redeemer. It's why we believe it is worth investing our finances and our time and our resources and our prayers into these missions partners. It's not just about the practical and justice and mercy ministries that they do. though Those are very, very good and God-honoring things but they're not ends in and of themselves. They point to a far greater end of the gospel and of salvation in Christ. And there's always going to be a tension and a temptation to want to separate those two. And throughout the history of the church, that's happened in both directions, whether that be you know, focusing only on practical service to the neglect of the gospel or, or vice versa. But, but think of it this way. You know, if, if love without truth is nothing more than making somebody feel very comfortable in their stateroom on the Titanic. Well, then truth without love is screaming at them that the ship is sinking as you shove them overboard. You know, true, but probably not terribly helpful as they freeze to death in the water because they don't have a lifeboat. You know, we, we have to do both. Yes, let's tell them that the ship is sinking, but let's do it as we're getting them on the lifeboat, even, even if maybe they're a passenger from a lower class, even if it means doing so at the cost of our own lives. As we conclude this morning, there are two things I want you to take away. One, if you are here today and Jesus has saved you, then you know, you know he's unstoppable. You know that his gospel will go to the ends of the earth and you know that he has called us to join him in it and we cannot call anyone unclean. But I would encourage you to ask him to examine your heart to search out those areas where maybe that old feeling still lingers. Because here's the real truth. No matter how unexpected his salvation of someone else is, the most unexpected of all is you and you and you and you and you and me. Because friends, we are all here because of Acts chapter 10. Because God looked at us and said, I will make you clean. So you ask him to give you opportunities to go and to serve, to go and to share, and to tear down any of those walls that are still standing in your heart. And then second, if you were here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus in this way, then hear this again. No matter who you are, and I mean that in every way it can be meant, no matter 
who you are. Just as Peter said, anyone who fears him and does what is right by believing in him is acceptable to him. Friend, come and be cleaned. Come and be saved.